I look back, you know, definitely with more clarity. At one point in the last years, I was just like, oh, yeah, look, music was definitely the only thing that that was kind of normal at times in my life. And just thinking about that whole that whole story and how it changes without music, you know, I, I don't think it would have been a very long, <laughs> a very long story. Like I, the way that I thought of myself, the way I viewed the world, all these things just weren't working very well. But then when I played music, I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leia Roseman. This podcast strives to inspire you through the personal stories of a diversity of musicians worldwide with in-depth conversations and great music that reveal the depth and breadth to a life in music. Chuck Kopanis is a Winnipeg-based Ojibwe musician from Animaki Wajing 37. In this episode, we talk about Chuck's excellent album, Oshki Manitou, which expands his work as a trumpet player, arranger, and composer. He's woven together ceremonial sweat lodge melodies with jazz, funk, dance, and electronica, and this episode features tracks from that album. Chuck is such a powerfully lyrical trumpet player and also has a really inspiring story of moving through trauma and addiction to helping others through counseling and music. You'll find Chuck's website linked in the show notes where you can go buy his albums and see what his current projects are. Like all my episodes, you can watch this on my YouTube channel or listen to the podcast, and I've also linked the transcript to my website, leahroseman.com. Please do share this episode with your friends and consider supporting the series by buying me a copy. The link is in the description. Now to the episode. Hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for joining me here today. I thought it would be great to start with some music early in the episode, as I like to do. And you released the single Creator before you released your last album. So maybe if you could talk to that track and we could play some of that and then sure. get into some more of your history. Yeah. This song Creator, um, I was actually just listening to it last night for the first time in a while. And uh, this song is based on a melody um, that's called Creator's Helper's Song. And... Um, I think the first time that I heard this would have been in my first sweat lodge was in 2014, the end of 14. And um, I would have heard this song somewhere in the next few months after that. Because um, <clears throat> once I went to that first lodge in, in the fall of that year, um, I went on this huge sweat lodge binge that was about two years. <laughs> And I was going to lodges um, and different other ceremonies like almost every weekend, um, sometimes multiple times a week. And um, what I'm finding now is I think people will go like once a month if they're lucky, you know, and sometimes a little bit longer. Sometimes if people are, are more involved in ceremony, they'll go like once, you know, once a week or whatever like that. So, so I was super like once I got to that first lodge, I was just like, like something pretty, you know. Um, I just knew I was onto something that I really needed to do, and I guess I had the time. Like I didn't have kids, and I I was just kind of my own. So I would have heard this melody somewhere in that in that period of time. 
I think it was the next spring after I'd been going to lodges all winter. Um, that's where I was kind of writing at home and, and I'd, I'd been on a, on a long hiatus from, from really performing. I have done the, the odd show here and there and I wasn't really, uh, there are periods there where I, I totally thought I wasn't going to be doing anymore. Like I, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm a good social worker. Like I'm good at, I'm good with people and I enjoy that. And maybe that's what I was supposed to be doing all along. And so I was having those thoughts and, uh, but then I was having us also this rebellion inside and I had people, I had people uh, always encouraging me that he's just thought it was kind of weird whenever I'd say, Oh, I don't play trumpet or I haven't been playing. They just be like, well, you should play trumpet. You know, it was never like admonishing. It was always just kind of like a, it was just like, well, that's just not right. <laughs> you know, or that's whatever. And I would be like, yeah. So, so this tune, I remember writing at home and, um, I had just started understanding ceremonial melody. I had never really heard the form before, and I never really understood the connection between the drum and the, the the vocal and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's an art form in itself. Yeah, I, I never connected with it until I went to the sweat lodge. And it was almost like that was opened a door. So I, I was uh, writing in my in my apartment at the time, just kind of like putting grooves together, just kind of, um, and I remember this melody was, was in my mind and I, I, I started writing chords and just kind of saying, oh, I wonder what, what it would sound like if I sang this melody and I, and I started putting chords there and making a groove around it and then that kind of just started this like, uh, I guess a, just a burst of creativity or whatever centered around that melody so that's where the song came mm. uh, for myself you're about to hear chuck's composition creator from his album oshki manitou
you're such a lyrical trumpet player, so singing in your style, yeah. but you actually do sing. Yeah, that well. uh, I couldn't have done that at that time. So that was in 2015. So it's now 20. Geez, the record came out in 2022. Mm-hmm. That's where I I started just kind of like singing in the sweat lodge, which is what everybody does. It gives you that time where you really wanna you really wanna participate in all the singing that's going on. If you, if that's what you enjoy, I started learning the songs as I was in lodges, and I started practicing singing like kind of outside of lodges. I was like, oh, I remember that song, and that was just kind of, and I I really began to start enjoying like using my voice in the lodges and participating in the songs. So over the next year, I'm like I'm still you know, a work in progress and kind of learning, learning melodies. And in the last year or two, I've, I've started kind of feeling more confident. I think my is a bit more controlled or like if I have to, I can sing songs or if I feel like I have to, but I'm not like breaking mm-hmm. out my hand drum and just wherever I, there's singers that I admire in the community, you know, and, and I feel like I'm, uh, you know, I'm just not there with with those guys. And and these are guys that have, some guys that have mm-hmm. grown up with that in their lives. And I, I wasn't really there either. You know, I didn't have, uh, there were people that I knew that were ceremonial, but it wasn't, you know, kind of um, entrenched in my home life the way that I see some people in ceremonies. Like they've, they've been exposed like for a long time. Um, and I, I wasn't really there. Like my, mm-hmm. you know, I've just been, been around a few years. For this recording, that was kind of a big thing. Like, am I gonna sing? Was a huge question. Or am I gonna ask mm-hmm. a friend of mine to sing? And uh, it was such a, the recording year, in 2022, was a whirlwind. I booked the time. I got the the funding through my management um, at the time got me a bunch of money um, and booked the studio time and I was just like I just started recording I had like a week and I was just like okay we're doing this in this week it just kind of I was like well yeah I guess I'm gonna sing I was thinking maybe I wouldn't even have singing on it but this song I wanted to have my friend Scott play who's percussionist and I perform with him pretty regularly you know, when I don't have a, when I have a gig where they're like, oh, we want, um, we want you to play, but we don't want a full band. Like we don't want the drummer. So then, you know, I've been playing for Scott for a while. So he played on this recording and we recorded it live in the studio uh, for those parts. So the drums, guitar and percussion and bass. Um, we just did a few takes and you know, just kind of worked out the arrangement that we wanted. And then we're like, okay, that's what we're doing. And then we just like, like recorded it. And it, it turned out really well. Like the, my um, recorded uh, Paul, he, um, he played bass as well as hearing on this and setting up all the stuff. He was sitting in there. He's like, and he did all the, the bass off the floor. So I thought that was pretty amazing. When I look back at some of the footage, I really love the whole album and I'm hoping we can feature maybe even clips of a few Mm -hmm. tracks because there's a lot of different sounds in it. But before we get into more of the music, sweat lodges weren't legal in Canada because of the Indian Act before. So it's I think 1951. So things in your community really changed. Like Mm -hmm. your grandparents wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think that they would have been able to. And I, I'm not really sure in a community how the knowledge came through. There was some kind of ceremonial leadership or, or medicine men, I guess you would say. But there was like a ceremonial community that I think probably all across Canada that were like, okay, this is something that we have to hide. So they just went into hiding and then carried it through. So um, I do remember someone saying that at points like sweat lodge were happening, but they were, you know, they were totally top secret. They were totally, um, and it was a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Um, for sure. Because, you know, we've, we've never really had the whole equality in the system. So if we're doing something illegal, it's it's not the same as an indigenous person doing something illegal in Canada. It's not treated the same, and that's still actually happening now. You know, where where if we do something illegal, the the consequences are going to be harsher in a general way. Kind of generalizing, but it does happen a lot. In terms of music, we could share. I wanted to ask you because. Um... Your tune, Nothing Simple, you have a, a clip of you performing it live with your ensemble on YouTube. Could we share some of that? Because some people watch the video version of this, and it'd be cool to see to have people sure. see you play. Sure, we could do that. That's at uh, Revel Stoke. That was the first performance with my new effects setup. Uh, going forward, that's something I'm really excited about, just kind of building, building on that because the technology is there. Um, where it wasn't there when I was young and I really wanted to play with effects. There's trumpet players like Randy Kerr and there's a trumpet player named Kong Vu who I thought was super cool, but he's, he is like a, he was a really, I think he's based in Vancouver, but he was a really awesome trumpet player. This is the live version of Nothing Simple, taken from a performance in Revelstoke, and you'll also find this composition on the album Oshkimani 2. This is Brendan Kinley on drums, on guitar Victor Lopez, saxophone Kyle Wedlake, bass Henry Onwuchekwa, and trumpet Chuck Kopanas. I've linked the video on Chuck's YouTube in the show notes for those of you listening to the audio podcast who want to check it out.
So, Chuck, you're Anishinaabe from yeah. Kenora, which is close yeah. to the Manitoba border, and you live in Winnipeg. Winnipeg has a, yeah. a large indigenous population, right? But is it, I'm just curious, are people mostly Anishinaabe, or are there Inuit that have come down from up north? Well, in Winnipeg, um, I would say Cree, Cree people and Ojibwe people, and there's um, uh, Sioux which I think is more like Dakota or Lakota. And then there's Dene people from the north and Inuit people from the north. But I would say most people in Winnipeg are, are you know, when I ask are usually, you know, Ojibwe uh, or Cree. And then there's other people, there's another, um, there's Ojikree, which is also very, there's a lot of people like, from the middle of there's island lakes. There's some lakes there where there's a huge population of Ojibwe people. Um, so yeah, this area is you know kind of I would say probably I would say half and half Cree and Ojibwe. I I have relatives who are Cree. So the the, the name of your mm-hmm. album. So Oshkimanitu, it means basically new spirit. At the time that I started writing this song, the title song, I was taking care of my mom around the year before she, I think she had a fall or she had a mini stroke and she was living in North Ostango where I'm registered. She was working back in near Kenora. And I guess when she had that little stroke, that kind of triggered her memory loss, accelerated it. I was taking care of my mom uh, for a couple of years before she had passed away. And I remember that, I guess it would have been 2017. I was going to lodge in and all that stuff. And she really, she really liked that, but she, she lived in Ontario and I lived here. And, uh, so when I started working on this album, um, my son, he wasn't born yet. It was a really interesting time because my mom, because of her memory of, of, her life was kind of going and, and she was having these health problems. There were periods of time where, you know, we told me about stuff that happened when she when that she had never told me before, like memories were coming forward. I'm sure this happens for a lot of people that kind of go through this. So I was able to, the first kind of sounds to this song kind of like really, uh, I really like using synthesizers and I really like using, you know, kind of sounds that kind of create a soundscape and then trying to work on my music from there. And I think that's my electronic background, my, my electronic music background. I remember just thinking that this sounds kind of like, a, you know, underwater. My son was, was still in the womb at the time and uh, we were waiting for him. I, was, uh, I figured I was on the cusp of doing something some kind of project and I it wasn't even close being ready to be recorded or anything but I was I was just thinking yeah ask my mom I'll dedicate this this set of music whatever it's going to turn out to be I'll dedicate it all to my son who's coming and that'll be my first present to him so yeah that's that's when I asked my mom how would I say new spirit because that, that's the name of the song before before and my mom just said oh you'd say Oshki Matatu yeah, so I really like enjoy that she is kind of a participant in and just kind of having to me it just kind of makes the whole project kind of gives it a little bit more life um, to have a lot of meaning behind it 
and to have that intention. I think that's what comes through as well. And, uh, in that in that title song, and when I do my trumpet solo in there, I'm really trying to picture like calling him, you know, or like like how like, what, how would I play if I were calling my son or introducing him to the world or or whatever. So I I kind of try to you're trying to just kind of introduce these phrases that would be that I, I think would add to a, a little kid. This is the title track on the album, Oshki Manitou.
And so now he's here and he's five. I really, I'm really hoping that he gets into the music stuff. So I bought a piano and I have, he can make a sound on the trumpet, which I think is pretty, like, I was just like, like this. <laughs> and, uh, and he's just like, oh, okay. And, he's, and he had a C going. And uh, if he blows harder, he can get the G, like the next partial. And I was like, I was like, okay, you're doing what 90% of the population can't do, you know, kind of. Yeah. As a five-year-old. So anyways, I'm really hoping there, but we'll see what happens. Hi, just a short break from the episode, which I hope you're enjoying so far. If you want to check out over 100 episodes you may have missed, in addition to your podcast player or YouTube, I have an extensive website, leahroseman.com, with show notes, transcripts, the complete catalog of episodes, and you can sign up there for my weekly newsletter to get access to sneak peeks of upcoming guests. Please do share your favorite episodes with your friends, follow me on social media, and share my posts. And if you can spare a few dollars to help support the series, that would be amazing. And you can find that link in the show notes. I'm an independent podcaster, and I really do need the help of my listeners. Now back to the episode. Yeah, speaking about this, so you got your start in a school music pro- program. And from what I understand, that school you went to no longer has a music program, like many schools. Yeah. Yeah, I think... I don't think uh, it's actually Lakewood. The school is actually gone. It's called uh, Seven Generations, um, and it's an indigenous school in Kenora. But so the the public school system, um, I think they might have moved grade seven, eight, nine over to the high school that I went to. Um, I'm not really sure what's happening there. But all I know is that the the Catholic um, school board now has the music program and uh they have a music teacher there that's his name's darcy yura and he's doing a he's doing a really amazing job he had he had me back there uh to speak mm-hmm. and uh so it, i'm really happy and there's indigenous he had me back there to talk to the students and stuff and and uh, yeah, it's really it's really cool to see a guy go to, to music school, you know. I added him on Facebook so that I could like kind of follow these dudes because, and uh, I think like not many people went to music school from Kenora. I think I could kind of safely say that. Um, and I would have to kind of do a little bit of research to find out. But it it just kind of wasn't a path as much as it would be in Winnipeg, you know, to have a a group of music students that go to high school and then all go to music school. There's just kind of more of a path. Mm -hmm. Kenora definitely doesn't doesn't have a path. But a lot of major, yeah, major, I mean, this is a small place, but big cities, it's, it's not every school that has... If they have a music program, they wouldn't necessarily have a band yeah. program. They might learn a little bit. You know what I mean? It's just not as robust yeah. as it used or to be. Or in the States. I'd imagine the States is like... Yeah. It's When I talk to the musicians, you know, if I can talk to somebody and talk about their path, it just seems like there's these... Mm-hmm. And even just looking on the internet, like the... I like watching the, the marching bands from from different schools and like those trumpet players, like high bands and stuff, like they're, they're doing, 
it's just a huge amount of people all supporting this music, you know, activity. It's, uh, yeah. I'm like, man, I don't know if there's any Canadian universities that be able to, well, the whole sporting, just everything's bigger down there. It's just lots more people than ever. So. Yeah. It is different. I, I did talk about marching band culture at uh, Historically Black Colleges with Emily oh, Sankofa yeah. recently. And it's, you know, and quite a few of the Americans I've spoken to, they definitely got the start in school um, in various instruments. And in Canada, it's not. Uh, I think we could use some mm-hmm. more support. Anyway, I just imagine how your life would have been different if you hadn't had the trumpet. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Um, and I've, as the year has kind of gone and I, you know, I, I look back, you know, definitely with more clarity, um, at one point in the last years, I was just like, oh yeah, look, music was definitely the only thing that, that was kind of normal at times in my life. And just thinking about that whole, um, that whole story and how it changes without music, you know, I, I don't think it would have been a very long, <laughs> a very long story. Like I, um, my behaviors, you know, and, and any addiction issues that I've had, um, you know, and since coming to ceremony and, and realizing I still have a, uh, I still had a huge amount of trauma that I had to work through, but that was like almost 20 years sober, you know, so I'm like 20 mm. and um, just kind of looking at the, whatever amount of trauma and, and I can't really explain why or how that just kind of transfers through from one generation to the next and then transfers through to the next generation. And I, I don't, Sometimes I just don't think they're the amount of intention. I don't think it's something that really works with your intention. Like, I don't think, well, obviously it doesn't. You know what I mean? If anyone could choose to not transfer their trauma to the next generation, I'm sure every person would choose that. And it wouldn't be such a, a long standing issue. So I, I think, you know, I think when I look back, the way that I was behaving when I was growing up, um, you know, from enduring some abuse when I was, you know, from outside of my family, um, when I was very small, you know, that kind of stuff just kind of was already trying to take over and it was trying to take over my life and, and the whole, like, the way that I thought of myself, the way I viewed the world, all these things just weren't working very well. But then when I played music, I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. And so when I was creating music with somebody or <clears throat> the period of time where, you know, periods like where I'm just working on some piece with the piano player that and we're going to do a performance that period of time where I'm practicing with her. I had, I didn't even know anything about her, you know, or her life or anything, but we were, 
bring in on this this time where I, I go and practice with her and we're just like creating this piece of music that I have to go perform or I have to go for a recital. And, and this was in like working on like Royal Conservatory, Royal Conservatory of Music pieces or the, and, uh, and then other performances like that would come up. So I would get this period of time where, where it doesn't matter if everything is abnormal or if it doesn't matter what happened you know, that that's causing me trouble because I really ever really remember thinking about conflicts or anything when I'm, I'm working on a box song or whatever, you know, I'm just like, okay, I'm working mm -hmm. on this tune now. And, and when I look back, I think that those things were probably immensely valuable to me as somebody who might be severely, as it turned out, I was severely con conflicted with the world and I I didn't feel that I I was I was struggling but I didn't know that either you know I actually had to get sober and this was like after high school after university and I had to come back to Kenora or come back to Winnipeg or I basically was just had to get out of Vancouver and, and go for treatment that's all that was in my head and the period of getting sober is that's when I, I was like, holy man, I really don't know how, how to live in this world. So the places that I did know how to live in the world was when I was playing music with my friends or using drugs and alcohol. And the rest of the time was, you know. So, yeah, it takes a long time to iron all that stuff out, like to get sober and to... Well, Chuck, I, I, from um, previous interviews, I understand that you had tried different therapies to deal with these problems, but going to the sweat lodges was really what you needed in terms of the spiritual connection and everything. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's a journey. And I think there's lots of different analogies that are used, you know, and, and uh, I always like the... Well, there's like there's a definitely obvious one. You're like peeling an onion, you know. You get the first layer, or your next layer, you get the next layer, and I like that one too because because you end up crying every time <laughs> every time you're peeling through a new layer. There's these layers of emotion or these layers of release at self-realization or realization that you've been kind of looking at things wrong, and you're like, holy man, you know, like. The whole idea of forgiveness when I first sobered up, I was just like, I didn't know that I didn't believe in that concept, <laughs> and it's hard to it's hard to imagine that I just didn't believe in forgiveness. Like, how do I? How did I get through the world? Or I believed that forgiveness had to be earned through a specific amount of of something you know, that it had to be earned. And I didn't know that you can actually live as a forgiving person. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not that kind of person, you know. And then for whatever those reasons, you, you think you're too weak, you know, and I would never admit that I was weak enough to be a forgiving person, <laughs> you know. So when I think about these, these are, these are just concepts that have to change. So you're, as you're, for me, as I was sobering up, I started just realizing these things and unraveling 
these things and and the gift to be able to to forgive. But yeah, so the sweat lodge when I when I think about getting there, um it was after a, a long period of of therapies. It was AA, you know, and, and to me AA was mentorship by people that are traveling the spiritual path. And uh, it took a while to, of being kind of fanatical. And that, to me, I think everyone starts fanatical a little bit in AA, which might be a statement that, you know, if someone's AA, they might go, oh, I'm never fanatical. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when I look back, at, back you know, being really scared of getting, using and drinking and clinging to something for support um, and then learning. I, but I, I remember I was frantically in my mind thinking, I have to learn this or else my life is over, you know, and, and that was just a reality. And for me, because, because it kind of was. You know, I, I was losing my apartment. I couldn't pay rent. I, like there was just kind of a, and it was all directly related to using, you know, drugs and and alcohol. And uh, so I I went through this, and that was in two thousand and one, when I sobered up. And uh, so yeah, it was a fanatical period where I just did nothing but meetings. And it almost reminds me of when I did nothing but sweat lodges, <laughs> you know, like like uh, 15 years later or whatever. And um, so, yeah, the sweat lodges, uh, it felt like all of that was just kind of preparing me for that, you know. And so the sweat lodges, I was, I was a person who had been sober a long time. I had a job. I could pay my rent. I, um, I didn't have kids yet, but... Uh, um, I don't, I still didn't think that I, I could have kids at that time or that I was, a, I kind of thought that that window was over. Yeah. The first sweat lodges really, they were really painful, but cause I'd been through so much already, I knew that that was, that was like kind of a positive, painful experience because the the songs I was starting to understand and I was like that's a huge positive like and so something something was kind of opening up to where I was it was about self-acceptance and it was there was a lot of feelings about kind of not belonging and sometimes I'll those feelings will come back you know nowadays where I'm like oh I'm, I wouldn't you know I'm not as spiritual or I'm not as cultural or, or whatever these kind of thoughts will come. I, I, I have to kind of just keep working on letting those go because that's not really, um, it's not helpful. And I, I wouldn't want anyone else to think that, you know, that you're not Indian enough. You know, I wouldn't want to, to go and to somebody, oh, you know what, you could be more Indian <laughs> or you could be more indigenous or whatever. And so when I do see that, because I, I see it, Sometimes that's what how people treat each other, you know, like, like in order to be in this ceremony or in order to, that you have to 
like they'll put limits on each other in ceremony or will put each limits on each other and it probably happens in a lot of places where kind of humans kind of start viewing some activity as a more of a competition rather than as a spiritual um a place to spiritually grow you know maybe in churches you know like people compete for positions maybe or or, or stuff like that where you kind of lose sight of the the actual goal when you were growing up in Kenora, it was kind of a segregated society i think it was segregated in my view there were people lived on the on the reserves it seemed like there was not as many other nationalities or other cultures uh kenora had kind of um you know, settlers and then indigenous people. When I look at old footage, you know, that was always a problem, you know, where it was always something that was kind of can, had a lot of conflict around it. Yeah, the way that there was people who had a lot of privilege or a lot of, you know, resources, and then there's people that didn't. And there was usually... You know, when you look at, I was looking at old CBC footage recently and um, the disparity between Indigenous, you know, what Indigenous people had and what the, you know, the setback was, was very different. So, but everything was kind of under the, under the, under the carpet when I was growing. And I, I mentioned this a lot, like when I look at, at the school now and how they're kind of educating educating the students and bringing in guys that are going to share story and all this kind of stuff like that didn't happen when I was in school and when we were when I was taught about indigenous people we were learning about um, southern Ontario um, people from southern Ontario and I don't really remember learning about Ojibwe people of the area you know which is a huge population Hmm. or I didn't you know, and, and it, that was more like from my family and stuff, you know, and and um, not really acknowledged, you know. And, and nowadays, you know, a lot of schools have, are acknowledging, you know, just kind of the existence of, of Indigenous people, wording, you know, um, using the word bequetch or telling people about that, you know, just kind of like, um, yeah, I'm really liking where things are in that way and thinking about my kid you know he's going to be going through the school system and he's going to he's going to learn a mm-hmm. lot more of a um, from me but i think also that that's going to be ported from the schools that he goes to or i'm going to i'm going to try to make mm-hmm. sure of it anyways yeah i'm happy to see how things are changing now but you know when i was like i'm in my mid 50s and growing up in ottawa the kind of education we were taught in schools about Indigenous people, I, the impression I remember having was there used to be these people here and they lived this way, but there was no sense yeah. of the present. Yeah, totally. Hunter-gatherer people. And uh, that's what I remember. That's all I remember, <laughs> basically. And in terms of the, the trauma of the residential schools, now, uh, to keep in mind that this podcast, there's 
uh, listeners in last month it was 88 countries oh. so a lot of people have no idea about the history of indigenous people here so if you could speak to that i i know your family was touched by it and certainly some of what you were talking about before relates to yeah. that story so when i talk about the trauma um or trauma being passed on intergenerationally intergenerationally um that's what i'm talking about is i think residential school was a part of that um maybe you know i'm not a history buff or whatever but I, maybe a part two i don't know you know there's this initial you know okay we see this this huge continent and there's people here but we want control of that you know and i need to get that control somehow so there's this whole and i um there's there's people that have have explore all the history but residential schools i think were a real to me were real uh kind of researched thing by by certain people in the canadian government i think researched boarding schools and then came up with a formula to in, to put in place in canada and it was basically divide the population into really small sections so that there there can't be a um, there can't be a real everyone's gonna one small section is gonna be against the other small section to be all this competition and for resources that aren't there you know for and uh, but then the other part of that in residential schools you know mine uh, was taken from. Onegaming Reserve um, with her sisters and her brothers. So there was, I think there was nine of them. And um, and I think they would come back in the summers. My grandma on my mom's side and the grandfather, like when they were kids were taken, um, it was just, it was ridiculous. Like it was kids literally were like okay you gotta come live here and if you try not to live you're going to jail you know that kind of stuff and uh i can't even imagine how painful that would be you know and i i do if, if i can i'll think about it and i'll think okay i have my son here you know and if if the government was like oh you know what we think we'll put in residential schools again <laughs> i'll have imagination and, uh, and I actually think this is why my mom wouldn't share the culture to an extent or didn't teach us the language because they're all fluent. Like my mom and my aunties are all fluent. And I really think that that idea, what if the government does this again, could have been like, well, you know, you can't trust the government, you know, so I want my kids to be safe. You know, so, and that might have not even been a, a decision for her because the residential schools were, were a place, I think, of mind washing, and they're a place that was meant to. Um, yeah, there's lots of quotes. Uh, beat the Indian, I think. Beat the Indian from the child, and so my my mom and my sisters, or my mom and her sisters and brothers, endured everything 
that you hear that is bad about residential schools. And some people have less experiences and some people have more. And that's something that's coming through right now with unmarked graves in Canada, where they're finding unmarked graves or mass graves around residential schools. And I think there's, when I think about that, that would be the more, you know, it's what my mom and my, her family had to endure. And then the next step up is people that don't survive, that didn't survive residential schools for whatever reason. And so anyways, yeah, so that to me, that's the trauma that I talk about that I think my mom unintentionally cast through. And I think it's still, when I, when I, Think about what I've learned in social, you know, in social services, stories that I've heard and, and uh, you know, just kind of observing people through that kind of lens, like these people, that, you know, people that have, have um, shared kind of teachings from school with me or shared spiritual growth stories with me or, um and what I've seen with people that get sober and then still have other areas to work on, um, that I think that residential school sent shockwaves that are in generational, intergenerational. And I still, Indigenous people nowadays, it shows itself in, in different ways. And I think, as we're growing as a nation, like as we're growing as indigenous people, you know, right now there's, there's people, there's people winning international awards, you know, there's people that are going to the Olympics. I think as time goes on and as generations keep going on, that gen, that shockwave is kind of dissipating so that, that, that intergenerational trauma is just kind of getting weaker. And, you know, I've seen it in high school. You know, I've seen it in the high school that I was, I was speaking at, TA in Kenora, Thomas Aquinas. And I look at native kids that were, that I was speaking with and, and I was just like, what was really clear is like, these aren't having the same experience that I had. You know, it's just obvious in the way that they're presenting, in the way that they're speaking and communicating you know, and just like, not like everyone's the same or whatever, but I'm looking for, there was nobody that was just against me for no reason, <laughs> which I was like, like I was definitely, like when I was in school, I, you know, I, I was, I just remember being very conflicted and very argumentative and very, um, yeah, I just had a lot of stuff going on that was that kind of was antisocial or whatever, just kind of little things. And and when I was looking, when I was at these students, I was thinking, oh man, you're that's so good. You know, it just helped me, it made me feel really good. You know that. Yeah, that the same. It's not the same. You know, and it, and that's good. I'm pretty sure. You know, and. I could probably go across Canada into different places and I would I would see that things are different right now compared to when I was 
you know, 20 years ago when I was going through. You're about to hear an excerpt from Chuck Kopanas' composition, Little Sunflower, from his album Oshki Manitou. I encourage you to buy his albums. His website is linked in the show notes. of Indigenous mentorship and music, Chuck, it would be interesting to talk about the project you did with Julia yeah. Keefe. And and I believe you guys also went to a reserve and did a clinic too, yeah. part of that big band. Oh, man. So we had our first gig. Uh, Julia got this band together and we played our first shows. Uh, we played in Olympia, uh, Olympia, Washington. And so that's the area that Julia is from. And uh, I can't remember the name of her, her people, but we played that show and we, we all got together and, and got, got together for this huge concert. But during the, we ended up going to um, a community where she was from. And uh, we went to an all indigenous school. I wish I could remember the name of it, but that was an amazing experience for me because it was all Indian teachers, all Indigenous little kids, and they were they had such spirit, and uh, and I was just thinking, man, this is this is uh, it was a really beautiful experience, and so we went in and played for them, and we went and uh, um, I did a workshop, and then we played our concert, and that was for me that was kind of I'd always kind of grown up. You know, as since I started playing music, um, I'd always, I kind of got you being the only Indigenous person, you know, and especially like with classical music, I, I didn't see many Indigenous people. And I might have been actually around a lot, come to think about it, because I've been, I've been, um, there's a lot of Métis people out there that I, I think that would don't see that as really important, you know, and, and or they wouldn't want to talk about that or whatever. So I might have ended up, I might have been playing with Métis people that I didn't know about. Maybe they didn't know. But uh, I remember being in this band and I was sitting next to the trumpet player, um, I think who probably brought me, in, brought me into the band. His name's Delbert Anderson. And, uh, and he totally looks like my cousin. You know, he looks like someone... That could be like from a different family at my res, my res or from, you know, in Kenora. And uh, the sax player, he's a, uh, I think he, he's a Comanche. And uh, yeah, again, he just looks like one of my relatives. He's, you know, he's uh, 
from, I think he lives down in the Dallas area right now. And all these other musicians, we all got together and we're performing works. The, the bass player, her name is Mally Obansuin, and she's from like the East Coast. And there's that same last name is in Canada as well. Oh, but it's, uh, there's someone from Montreal with the name Obansuin. I forget her first name, but I actually think that might be the same last name or it's, it's actually related last name. So that's like the border between Montreal and, and the New York area, all this stuff, like all, take away all those borders and those people, you know, that and I'm slowly starting to learn the history of that, that area from members of that band, you know, as we're sharing, as we're playing more gigs together, I'm starting to like talk and, and um, there's a sax player named Asa Peters, um, who to me, uh, you know, he's a really young guy, but he, um, he's part of the Mashpee, Mashpee tribe, and he lives around Boston, but they kind of have their teachers and powwows and stuff, but they don't have any land, you know, like they didn't, their land, like, and I'm just, oh man, like, and I've always hated the reserve system, or I've always talked out against the reserve system. But at least it's just a place where my family is from, you know, and and it's it's a town isn't going to be built on it, you know, and the system might be flawed, but he lives in a place where the the community was there, but it had zero protection. A town just kind of went on top of it. And so all the people that are lived there are in it just absorbed into the town and gone or not gone, but just kind of like, there's no, and I always thought, oh man, well, that, that's strange. It's strange that I would be thinking it's, it's too bad you don't have a reserve, you know, <laughs> but it's like, but anyways, yeah, it's a, it's a crazy situation, but that band is starting to, um, it's bringing all these jazz musicians from all around North America. And we're all getting to kind of share these stories with each other and kind of share our knowledge. Um, we did that concert, you know, I was like, I was like, man, I wish there was a singer here that could sing, you know, an honor song for their first concert or whatever. And then I was like, <clears throat> I was like, damn, well, I guess there's nobody that's going to sing a song. So I asked if I could sing a song <laughs> and I was just like, you know, I, I think it sounded okay, but I was like, man, it felt like I, I that, that that event of us playing together and and starting something that might be or continuing something like big bands, indigenous big bands have been around for a while, which I also learned, but they're part of uh, like it, there's been indigenous people in the military, there's been um, military jazz bands you know, with indigenous players or, or um, in Julia Keefe's area, I guess there was big bands that were part of the indigenous community that uh, I think they were part of schools or something. And they were like, there's old, you know, or, um, pictures of, of a bunch of native kids all playing, you know, jazz music. And I thought that was... 
that's pretty amazing. And, and thinking, man, that would never have happened in Canada, you know. So there is this history that we're continuing. And uh, I'm really hoping that that band just keeps growing or just kind of becomes an established, you know, established thing. And then hopefully something that can um, carry forward into different areas, you know. I'm just kind of looking into the future, you know, is there going to be an Indigenous jazz festival, you know, somewhere in New Orleans or maybe Gathering of Nations, the huge pow might have the jazz festival area or whatever. Like, I don't know. So that, that the, I actually, one of the things I remember thinking, like when I first played with that band is I didn't think I would see something like this. Like I was like, this would happen. Of course, this is going to happen. It's probably going to be after I've gone, you know, that that there's going to be enough indigenous. And all of a sudden it's happening while I'm alive. And I'm like, yeah, I made it. And I'm, I'm one of the old guys, <clears throat> which is something in itself that I'm getting used to is being the old guy. <laughs> so Chuck, if we could go back to your... Um your music education a bit. So you had some early jazz experience, like in the community swing band mm -hmm. you were able to play in and it's classical. And then at a certain point you got into electronic music. How did that work its way in? Um, I guess my path is, has been pretty kind of zigzaggy or whatever, but I had like a really fast start with music training and then basically it's kind of like a really fast start and then just kind of went blah, 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 and kind of got fragmented or whatever. But when I was in grade seven, that's when I started playing it. And then my family, once I was good at it, I enjoyed it. You know, I, I never thought about it, but I realized now that my, maybe my stepdad, maybe and my mom, maybe people around were just like saying like, Chuck is good at something and he's interested in something. So this needs to be supported. And so then my, my stepdad, Peter, at the time, he's um, still in contact with us, even though he wasn't with my mom. He just started, uh, um, he was paying for my sister's swimming lessons and he was still supporting me and my sisters um, in doing stuff. And incidentally, my oldest sister, Serena, was, was on her way to the Seoul Olympics. That was the goal with her. Like, she was one of the faster... Mm. She was hanging at the top swimmers in the world at the time. Um, and that was when Canada was at wow. the... So there was Bauman, there was Victor Davis, there was Ann Bright. There was this crew of Canadian swimmers that were at the top, and my sister was kind of... Anyways, so my stepdad was supporting her where she was at and then all of a sudden I became good at music or I became good at the trumpet or was discovered and and then in grade eight Kenora had a community big band and we we basically played two big gigs a year one at the harbor front for the community and then one at a hotel for the seniors and all the seniors in on in Kenora would show up and we'd play polka so we they really liked the polkas and like the polkas would just pack the dance floor. That was basically my first exposure to jazz music. 
and then I would do solos in the band and, and Barry, Barry Easton, who conduct, who was the conductor of the band. Um, I was second trumpet, so I would always get all the solos and I would just plan to play the written solos. So they'd be playing in the mood. There'd be a written trumpet. So, so I'd play that there'd be, and I would never, I would never actually improvise cause I was really scared of that. And, um, I thought it was just a too complex of a thing to do. I didn't know that that experience of playing in that big band from grade, you know, from grade eight to nine, 10, 11, 12. When I got to university, I was, I was a great leader. Like um, when I got into the big band at university or the, the band, uh, the concert band, all that kind of stuff. Um, when it came to new pieces, I remember, I can't do it now, but I remember how far ahead I could read. Like when I was playing, I was like, mm. oh, I, I, I was looking. And right now when I try to read, because I don't read a lot, I, I, I have to stay on the bar that I'm reading. And, and with bifocals, it's, it's actually trickier now. <laughs> but I remember at that time I could read. Uh, and when I got to university in the big band there, I, I ended up being in the senior the senior big band, usually the first years couldn't go into the the senior big band. There was a, mm-hmm. a big band for the for the first years, but I was I was the only first year that was into the in the senior big band. I guess because I had all this experience. When I was going through high school, I was taking theory, and I was taking um, trumpet through Royal Conservatory of Music. So when I finished high school, I had a grade 10 trumpet, and then I had a grade 8 piano, and a grade 6, mm-hmm. I think it was grade 4, grade 5, something harmony. And all of that, I thought, was like not enough when I got to university music. Like I thought, because my music teacher was like, oh, all these guys are going to have like like everything they're going to have way more than you have for training or whatever. So you have to be, you have to just keep, keep going. And then when I got to university, when I finally got in, I was ahead of everybody. <laughs> it seemed I was kind of, I was everything that I was uh, like all the harmony and all the theory it was second year second year harmony and theory. The mm-hmm. only thing that I didn't know anything about was music, the music history, the actual trumpet instruction I had never had when I got to university. Like I never really had anybody teach me the trumpet and I didn't think I needed it, which was, I think it was a little cocky, but when I actually got to the trumpet teacher, he, he spent the whole first year in, um, his name was Alan Innes. And I remember every time we went for a lesson, all he would do is just stand beside my trumpet and he would just watch my lips and watch my my position. And he would just be like sitting there going, as I was playing these songs, because I had so many bad habits, like I would shift around this, I'd move. I had this big growth on my wrist from holding the trumpet wrong from grade seven oh, okay. to all through high school. He'd always just be like just sitting there adjusting me. 
and uh, my air. He kind of showed me how to how to blow and play the trumpet without using so much muscles, like so much uh, compression, like kind of strength, which is kind of what I was doing at the time. And I, yeah. So when I got to Brandon, um, music was definitely um, just a kind of really easy experience. Everything I really, I never found playing very hard and playing the music that we were doing. Like it was really fun. And like I said before, it was, I, I kind of thought I had things reversed, but I, I really enjoyed the whole music experience, like going up, because I think it gave me those breaks. I, I just realized, Chuck, so you, you were at Brandon. So was it James Ennis's dad who was yeah, teaching you trumpet? Yeah, his name is Alan Ennis. Yeah. Okay. What a cool connection. James was one of my first guests on this podcast, and he talked about his dad, you know, being the trumpet oh, teacher there, and I hadn't yeah. made that connection. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. He was a... Uh... Yeah, I really liked him. I really liked him. And he he really, he chose pieces for me to play that were really cool. Like, I wish I still had them. Like, I, I lost all my music when I was in Vancouver and I moved back. I left this giant box. Mm -hmm. Like, I had this, like, all my university music, all my books, everything in there. But it had all my Royal Conservatory stuff with the markings, like just kind of everything that I wish I had still. Mm. But uh, yeah, he, I remember the song that he chose. I wish I could pull it out and just kind of read over it again because he kind of chose. I remember um, I could play Bach or I could play, you know, whatever, but he, he chose more, a 20th century music piece for me to play. And, and I remember really thinking that it was a. Um, I liked, I liked it because it wasn't strictly with the piano, at times, and kind of. I guess mm -hmm. he he probably recognized that I was a, more of a lyrical player, of more you had more, you know, just kind of a unique way of of looking at things, and he was totally supportive of that. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I ended up leaving. I ended. I only did the two years in Brandon, and I and I left. So at a certain point, you decided to go get a, a degree in social work to work in the community. Um, well, what ended up happening is uh, I went to, so I went to treatment coming back from Vancouver. Yeah, I was 19, so that would have been 99. And so it took me a couple of years to get sober after getting to Winnipeg. And I only came here because my mom and my, my family came here. Otherwise, I would have went to Thunder Bay. I went to treatment at a place called AFM in, in Winnipeg. It's called the Addictions Foundation of Manitoba. And AFM was closely um, tied to Alcoholics Anonymous in Manitoba. And I, I think AFM actually, it was called the Alcoholism Foundation of Manitoba, and it was kind of born of out of AA, or they they came about at the, around the same time that AA um, started, you know, forming and getting popular, and uh, so that's where I went to treatment, 
when I got to, to Manitoba. I went there twice, and I completed once, and I failed once, and then I went to another treatment. So I, I went to treatment three times, and then I ended up, and that was in 2001. And, um, and then in 2004, um, one of my close sobriety buddies named Alan, he, he got a job at the AFM. And at that time, they were still hiring um, residential care workers from the recovery community. So to hire people based on their kind of sharing experience and sharing their story and just kind of being having a, um, you know, a history of sobriety, obviously. And uh, so that's how, how I ended up getting a job at the AFM. And then okay. AFM will, they also have an education um, portion of AFM so people can come and take addictions courses. Um, and some of them can qualify towards their degrees. So some, um, but basically AFM would just give those to all the people that work there for free. So I ended up going and taking counseling courses and um, different addictions courses there. But I actually never got a, an actual ticket mm -hmm. in social social work. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious, because you're working these long hours in the community, it must take an emotional toll. Would you go and play music to kind of balance that out emotionally? I think so. I think when I started working at the AFM, that was the first job that I took that was not like physical labor or not just kind of security work mm -hmm. or just kind of, you know, kind of work that I, I wasn't really good to. Um, and I'd always thought, you know, eventually I'm going to play music. I just don't know what that's going to look like. So I uh, went to Winnipeg. I was playing with a band called Moses Maze. And, um, and then when I sobered up, I was still playing with them. And I was working at AFM. And then I started working at a homeless shelter called um, Main Street Project. And when I look back, those first few years, I, it was all just learning. You know, I was kind of learning about myself as a helper because um, I didn't really know that I, I enjoyed helping people up until like, like someone just said, oh, do you want to try the AFM? And, and um, yeah, I guess, you know, I started kind of exploring myself like how, as a counselor or as a crisis worker or a crisis counselor or whatever you want to call it, like to helping people get through rough periods in the treatment center. But I was also, uh, you know, kind of helping when I was working at uh, Main Street Project, there was there were a lot of different kind of situations that would arise there. And I started kind of gaining more skills at helping people through um, know uh, really you know people that have become homeless and they're like okay what do I do you know or, or going through huge loss or you know all these kind of things that that happen and I I started finding that I was really I really enjoyed that you know and um, I really enjoyed connecting hearing hearing you know encouraging people to share so they can get things off their chest and all this kind of stuff. 
and I found that I was really good at at that. And I didn't know I didn't know that it was taking a toll on me actually, <laughs> till until I was at for quite a while. And then I started kind of learning about trauma and learning about uh, vicarious trauma. And I was actually taking on a lot of stuff, um, and it was starting to affect me. I started kind of learning about that and how do you, I guess it's a, a next level, like how do you work in the social services, go through helping people get through, you know, all these different you know this wide array of, of crisis that they can uh, they can experience, and how do you connect with people, and how do you disconnect from somebody so that you, you know connect with yourself? You know all these kind of things that are, I think, is the, kind of the next part of learning. You know, either you do or you don't do, and either either do it or you burn out, and people. People can burn out pretty hard from, from social service work, which I started seeing like people that, uh, you know, just become so hard to work with. I'll see people now that I'm like, you know what, I can tell that you need to stop working for a while because <laughs> you know? mm. I can tell that somebody is, has just been putting themselves out there for so long that they forget why they're doing it in the first place, you know, because they're not treating people well or treating themselves well or whatever. Like, like something's off, the balance is off there. So, yeah, and then I was doing music just for the first while of that, and then I just started doing that work for quite a while, you know, up until... I think about 2012, I think it was about a, a five to seven year period where I wasn't really playing trumpet at all. And I wasn't really working on music and it was just kind of really at the peripheral outside of of the of working in social services. So I, I've kind of been doing that for so long that... Um, I remember there was where just nobody knew I was a musician that I was working with. You know, the only people that knew were, you know, like my family. And like I was those people that would remind me, I would see them or run into them at the mall and they'd be like, oh, so how's the trumpet going? And they're like, damn, I haven't played in a while. You know, or I haven't thought myself as a musician in a while. So Chuck, your, your first album, it came out, a couple of years after that, yeah, was your motivation just to kind of get your music out there to get gigs? Or? Well, when that album came out, I knew that I needed. I had something recorded, so that was in 2016, I do believe, or 2015. And I started going to sweat lodges in 2014, so. That was one of the things that happened from the lodges is, you know, I was working on music and I was like, but it would just go by the wayside so easily, like doing social work and doing my jobs. And as I continued to gain experience in the social service field, 
get different jobs. I, I guess I started getting more intense jobs with with more responsibility, and um, so they'd be way more consuming, you know. So, hmm. um, and like consuming over like the whole day, you know, working at nighttime, communicating with people at nighttime, all that stuff. So I would have these little bursts where I would just be like, Oh, I wrote some, I wrote a couple tunes and then I would, I wouldn't play for a long time or I'd have a little burst where, you know, a buddy asked me to play with their band for a gig. So I'd go do that and find that I could barely play, but I could play enough to play the song and play the the concert or whatever. But I remember there was one period where I I couldn't even play. Mary had a little lab. Like I was, I hadn't been playing at all and I had to just rebuild. And uh, yeah, so in 2014, I went to that sweat lodge and that was one big thing that happened because I remember I remember sitting there just kind of being down in the dumps at the apartment that I had and just kind of earning. I remember, I think I might have saw on social media like a, a somebody that I'd, I know which guy it was, but they were super successful at, at doing music stuff. And it was somebody that I would have considered my peer a while back. And they were like doing this thing that I want to do. And I was just like, damn, like, we, I could be doing that, you know, or, and maybe I was just like, I was, and I'm just thinking, yeah, that's what I really want to look, I really want to do, you know, and I'd been to my lodges and for whatever reason, there wasn't, um, like, I wouldn't just put those thoughts aside. I, I ended up phoning my, the people that are in my band, right? Like the drummer specifically, Brendan Kidley. I remember phoning him and phoning the bass player Ashley, who was who played on that first recording, and I asked them um, if they wanted to be in my band, and and they said yeah. And then I went and I booked a gig, and I I phoned a place in Winnipeg, like, um, and just told them that I had a band and I already had music and all this kind of stuff, just to get the gig. And then that's kind of what started doing that recording is, is I, I played that gig and then I, was, I started putting the music together and just kind of choosing stuff from my, my past, um, grooves that I'd been working on when I, when I did work on music. And uh, I, was, I basically just had this mindset that I'm going to do this no matter what, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it sounds like. I don't care. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I was just like, I, and I don't know where that mindset came from and why it came all of a sudden. I'd probably been depressed like that before. I'd probably been, I'd probably been there a bunch of times just kind of yearning and hoping or wishing or whatever, but it never went in next step, which was, I, I'm going to make this happen. And I'm not going to take no for an answer from myself anymore. You know what I mean? And that's where I feel like right where I am right now, where I'm, I'm just kind of like, I don't have a manager anymore. And, um, 
you know, I'm not the greatest at the funding, like the grant writing and all this stuff, but I don't feel like I'm going to give up. You know what I mean? Like I could go get another job. I probably could. But in my mind, something's changed where I'm just like, well, I don't want to do anything else. So I quit my job and and um, it's either do music or, or I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> I just don't, I just feel like I don't, I don't have a choice anymore and I used to. And that's why I think that's what happened with the sweat lodges and stuff. It was just like removed that, that lock and maybe mm -hmm. even shifted it the other way or turned it around where, where, well, you're doing music and do you feel, are you nervous about, you know, are you nervous about speaking or are you nervous about, about um, failing or having a fear of failure or whatever, and, and uh, it used that used to stop me, you know. And now it's like, well, we're doing it anyways, so we might as well just not. When I think about my in my mind, it's like the dialogues change. It's like you better get over it because we're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> so I I don't know why. Maybe there's just some another, and maybe there's another power there. Maybe there's another, maybe that's what happens if you engage, engage your spirit in something, is it gives you a little entity or that a little thing that's like just kind of creating a different, a different situation internally, I don't know, rearrangement. But yeah, mm -hmm. that's where I, like I'm at. I am right now. Just kind of trying to say, say yes to, say yes to opportunities. And I haven't been working since May. Um, I got some money from my reserve, and um, my reserve is called Northwest Angle or Anamaki Wajing, and the did a floodplain and they paid out all the members of the reserve a certain amount of money for having their territories flooded out like crazy back in the early part of the century and uh, once I got that money I remember thinking oh it's going to be nice because I'll, I'll be working plus I'll have this money in the bank but what I did I ended up just quitting my job <laughs> like right away and I was like okay well here's an opportunity and mm -hmm. I'll get a job if I have to, but right now I'm not going to worry about it. And actually, when I when I played my gig in Manitoulin Island, um, an elder there, actually two elders, saw me right away. I was playing on the uh, Wikwemakong Reserve. Um, they had a little ceremony for me there, and when gave me some medicine for my knees which really helped actually and uh but what they identified or what this woman identified michelle is that i'm a super that i was really sad and as we started talking she she identified helped me identify like totally counseled me and i guess i was just like i was just right there like wanting that although i didn't 
I didn't think that was going to happen when I when it's happening. I was like, oh man, what's going on? All of a sudden, I'm counseling. I'm getting counseled. And um, but she helped me identify that I miss my clients from my old job. So this was in November, and I quit in、mm. May. And now it's like、uh, January. But I think from May until now has been the only time that I haven't been working this job where I'm consumed by the people that I work for.、Mm-hmm. And I didn't know. Anyhow, sometimes you, you, for me, maybe for other people, you have to actually do something before you find out why you have to do it. Like you don't get to find out before. Maybe that's a. One of the hardest things about being human, maybe, is that sometimes you don't get, you don't get everything laid out for you. You know what I mean? And you just have to find out later. So I think, you know, I think,、uh, yeah, I think getting the money, you know, it's just kind of opening me up to kind of do all these things that I didn't. You know that I've been putting off because I work and trying to work and do music, and now I think I I would really like to work on on work doing workshops,、um, speaking with people and sharing my story. Also,、mm-hmm. you know, sharing some recovery. You know,、um, and just kind of see if I can I can help people、um, connect to music. Or connect to themselves, you know, or connect to what they want to do, you know, through just kind of sharing things that I've gone through. Especially with going to sweats, I do think, I do think there's a lot of guys like me out there. A lot of women and men are people that don't go to ceremony because they don't think that they they belong there or something like that. And maybe, maybe I can help. Help a little bit, kind of. Maybe somebody really wants to go to the lodge, but they don't think they have to, because they've gone to counseling or whatever. Like they don't think they're gonna get what they need there, which I didn't think. I didn't think I was. I needed to go to the sweat lodge, but it turned out I really did. So, Chuck, in these workshops, would you incorporate your music with talking about your story? I think I would play, and I would talk. Kind of what I do at at live performances, anyways,、um, mm-hmm. and it it works really well. I'm I'm finding I get a lot of really positive response from from concerts that I where people really like the stories, like they like the the things that I talk about or the you know the story of the sweat lodge. I I I do like to share a lot,、um, and then also just kind of picking. You know, little. You know, trying to share a bit of that spiritual growth thing. So I think if I were to do a workshop, and and I'd like to do one with with younger people, is I w- I would、uh, definitely do music and and speak. So kind of try to try to flip、mm-hmm. things so that it's not just listening to me talk, and it's also watching my band play. And this year. You know, I really want to start doing collaborations. So I've I've recorded my album, I've released it, and I'm trying to like my album to grow. But I'm also thinking about the next. You know,、um, I'd like to do a lot more collaborating with maybe some younger people.
especially guys that are you yeah. know just kind of getting into doing music stuff or or whatever so i'd like to like to learn the business with them and you know just kind of try to keep growing my own my own profile so that i can you know mm-hmm. i definitely like um i definitely would like to to help other other young guys get into music or be able to to build path and uh i know there's organizations in canada that i think go to they go to different communities in the north and or bring music uh bring instruments into the north you know i'd, I'd like to do stuff like that i could really build that connection well, thanks so much for sharing your, your personal stories and, and um, how you overcame a lot yeah. through music. It's really it's amazing. No problem. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share this with your friends and check out episodes you may have missed at leahroseman.com. If you could buy me a coffee to support the series, that would be wonderful. The link is in the description. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>